honesty hour, I did not know what I was doing in regards to launching this podcast. And I wouldn't have been able to do it without Anchor. Anchor makes starting a podcast super, super easy and allows you to not only use their platform to distribute the podcast, but you can even go on your phone or computer and record and edit the podcast right on their platform. Best of all, it's totally, totally free. So if you're interested in starting a podcast, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Hi, I'm Erin Minton, the Senior Design Director of Surface Design at Reebok. Uh, And I just recorded my episode for Women in Sneakers season of Strange on Purpose podcast. To get us started, why don't you introduce yourself, who you are, what you do, why you do it? Yeah. Um, so my name's Erin Minton. I'm the Senior Design Director of Surface Design at Reebok. So, um, and I'm sure we'll go into a bit more of what that is later, uh, what surface design means, because I know a lot of people don't know that term, but you're, you're welcome, you're about to. Um, <laughs> and I've been at this for too long to count. I think I lost count now, but over a decade, like what, 12, 15, something like that. Um, so yeah, I work in the sneaker industry. I've bounced into fashion. I've bounced into trends. Um, I've kind of got a pretty bulked up toolbox at this point um, when it comes to the design side. So yeah, that's me. Nice. That's awesome. You, after Aaron Narlock, a uh, previous guest on the podcast told me about you, she was like, yeah, you'd be perfect. She would be perfect. Um, I did some research and in, in college, we were talking about your college essays and everything like that. Uh, you did a piece on the color orange, um, from Oregon state (laughs) and I was reading it and it seemed like you were really, really passionate about the color orange, but there was nothing in there about shoes. Um, how did you go about landing where you are today? Take us on that journey. Yeah, yeah. So that's actually a really funny story, that piece, because um, uh, a good friend of ours is actually the editor still at our alumni magazine. So after I had left, I was in the trend world at that point, and um, Kevin had called up and said, hey, like, we're tr- we've had a lot of alumni, like, specifically, like, people who have been graduated for a long time that come back to games or come to events or, like, Golden Jubilee, which uh, I used to work at the Alumni Center, a uh, little detail when I was in college setting up um, – like banquets and events and things. And the Golden Jubilee is this event they throw for all the people who have been graduated for, I want to say it's like 50 or more years. So it's all of the like, like basically the, some of our oldest and most like senior alumni in the organization. And so a lot of them have amazing style and it was always my favorite event to work. But I was starting to see like, when you have to wear black and orange, which can get very Halloween-y really fast, like how do you actually make it stylish? And so Kevin had asked me to write that article and I was like, well, what I learned, it's all about accessories, right? Because orange is a powerful color. <laughs> and I tend to, uh, as you guys have seen in our brief conversations, I wear a lot of black for being someone who works in color. Uh, it's always, I just get teased a lot that I wear a lot of black. Um, but I've got a red lip, that's something. <laughs> but um, I, so I had a lot of fun with that one. It was, it was nice because it's, you can, I used to always go by the, the idea of, you can basically make anything work if it's one crazy thing and you build around it with other stuff. So that was kind of the take I took on that, but yeah, so that was kind of, that was a fun one, but I think, um, yeah. So in school, I obviously go beeves. I'm an Oregon state alum. Um, and I think, uh, one of the things that 
I really stood out for me when I was in school. I went through graphic design, so applied visual arts, I believe it was still called at the time, um, and learned really quickly that I don't do well when it's just on paper. So like setting type and logo design, it's awesome. And I have so much respect for the people who do it. It's just not where my heart's at. I mean, I married someone who does it very, very well, so I don't have to. Um, and I uh, really figured out that I like when you start to touch things and you're in the third dimension. So I think uh, I figured that out by the time I got to my senior thesis and had some great professors that encouraged me to kind of explore that more. So I was doing things like I was using sandpaper to communicate how the argument was getting um, more heated as you went and the grit was getting bigger. I was doing, you know, layers of muslin to show kind of veiled agendas that people had in a conversation through type kind of being set back in the, in the background. So I think that kind of led me down this path. And by the time I got to the end, I had met someone who was working at Nike and I, um, unlike I think every other kid who lives in Oregon, I did not grow up dreaming to work at Nike or Adidas. I was not a big sneakerhead. I was an athlete in school, but not a very good one. So I didn't really get, as you learned in your tennis research, um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, didn't, uh, I didn't see that as a prospect I needed in my, my life moving forward. Um, so it was actually a really interesting journey for me to end up going to Nike after school. Um, I worked with them on my thesis. I uh, met uh, Julie, who was running at the time the materials library, and she invited me up and showed me the materials library, let me kind of snatch a couple materials of, out of their like discard bin that they were recycling. And that's how I built my thesis out. And mm. so I was super lucky in that sense and kind of caught the bug and was like, this is a thing you could do. Who knew you could like play with material swatches and that could be your profession. Like you could go, someone will pay you to do that every day, right? And it sounds silly now, but Back then I was a small small town kid from Grants Pass, Oregon. I had no idea that was a thing. So I think that's where I kind of caught the bug and then uh, applied for an internship uh, and got in and as an intern at Nike after that. So felt super lucky in that sense and got put up with a good team at Nike and that's kind of how I got there. That's awesome. It's really cool. Like not a lot of people, when somebody looks at a sneaker, um, they're thinking of the sneaker that's in front of them. So they don't think about all the intricate details that actually go into the sneaker. They think of the color, they think of maybe a leather and that's it. Uh, and it's really cool just hearing and hearing from everybody the different types of positions that you can get within the industry. Because before, like honestly, before I had met you and Dan recommended you and Aaron recommended you, I didn't know too much about what you did. And as I did more research and everything like that, there was so much cool stuff that goes into um, your everyday job. I honestly feel like you go to work and you have fun every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely, most days, yes, absolutely. There's, uh, with every job, there's gonna be certain times where you're like, oh man, but I think I'm incredibly lucky that something that seems so niche and so kind of specialized can be an entire career and that even this far in, you know, I can still keep growing it and keep shifting it to feel like I'm having new experiences almost every day. Like, I think that's a pretty, pretty interesting thing. You mentioned like, <laughs> you mentioned texture and um, creating, and I'm wondering if, was it always a love of that or did it ever shift to like, hey, like I really love sneakers. I love the stories because I, I don't consider myself a sneakerhead at all. Like I was that weird dude in college that walked around barefoot with his guitar, like singing Still in is. grass, like the hippie dude, you know? <laughs> and like, it wasn't until like, he's like, I want to do this series. And I'm like, okay, I should probably know something. So I started, he gave me like this book on like history and like, it's dope. 
Like it's so, so, so dope. And there's so many, like even from a marketing perspective, just things that I didn't know and things that I do that probably originated from the industry. So I'm wondering if it ever shifted from, hey, I really love art and I love making this stuff too. I love shoes, I love sneakers. Yeah, I, I grew up in art classes, right? Like, so my dad is super creative. He helped us with every diorama we ever did. He personally iced every single cake. Like I remember for my 16th birthday, my first car was a Volkswagen um, Super Beetle convertible. They got it from like a field with a bunch of goats in it. So on my birthday cake that year, it was a, a car, like the little Super Beetle looked exactly like it was goats all over it and everything. Like it's, he, I think he was always, he was a, he was a woodworker. Right. So he did cabinetry and furniture and um, grew up doing that. And that was his creative side. So I think he definitely rubbed off on me a lot. And I had the, the chance to have incredible art teachers growing up all the way through from being really little. Like in middle school, I had Mr. Beck and then I had Mrs. Erickson in high school who, you know, I remember after she retired going out to her house and seeing her studio, she just like super generous, inspired people. Right. And I think they kind of helped me kind of curate that. I think where being in a small town, I just never thought there was a profession there. I always knew I couldn't paint for a living. I wasn't good enough for that. Mm -hmm. And I knew that it was also one of those things where you're like, well, I'm not gonna be like, you know, a Jackson Pollock or a Monet or somebody. So like, what do, what do I do? And so I think I kind of found graphic design in that way where it was felt like it was close enough to what I enjoyed doing, but I knew that there was a profession there. And then that's where I think Oregon State became a huge thing because of the purely, the exploration that they give you there and the openness that the program gave you. Um, I was lucky to be there during a time when our, our professors were incredible and just super supportive and would see these little glimpses in people and be like, oh, I see that. I want to nurture that in you and help you kind of build that. I mean, we were really scrappy though. We had uh, our, our building actually has uh, so much old vintage Eames furniture. It's actually a bunch of it's on the like historic register for how much furniture we have in there that's oh, wow. Eames furniture because it was originally stocked that way when it was just normal furniture. Um, and we had an entire like type foundry basically in the basement that we found like I think our sophomore year and but there was no actual type presses. So we just had all the metal types. So we were down there like rolling buckets across it to like make yeah. posters and stuff. Like we learned to be scrappy early. And so I think that's part of it is I kind of came from that. And then Oregon State was just such a good match for that for me because it really reflected that and then kind of keeping moving. So to your point, I think it was more, yeah, the creativity was there. It was just, how do you harness it and get there? And I think that for me, it was always a very physical thing, right? So I think that's where a shoe comes in because it's this amazing 3D object. I also happen to love shoes. Um, so that helps. Uh, and um yeah i think it was it was less about trying to get into the sneaker industry versus following a passion i had that led me to the sneaker industry that then also kind of became a passion in that sense because i didn't really know it was a thing you know i didn't know the sneaker industry was as big as it was in my little town you know i'm i'm old enough to have not had great internet access uh when i was that age so <laughs> i i didn't have instagram and all that stuff i remember um even in my early days at Nike, taking like um, the pictures of all the editors in Women's Wear Daily from the fashion shows and taping them out with their names and stuff so that if I went to a fashion show, I'd know who I was looking at and all that because oh. you just didn't have the celebrity of all that at the time. So, yeah. Was there, was there anybody growing up um, from your art that you really looked at as that, that's somebody that I want to follow in their path? Um, doesn't have to be in sneakers. Yeah, um, I was always a big um, Yves Saint Laurent fan. 
okay. um, because of, I always wanted to be a gestural like artist and I never could. I'm too type A and I'm, I'm a Virgo and I'm just like, I have to clean it up. I've got to erase everything. Um, and I think one of the things I've always loved about him and his style is his sketches. Because one of the things that um, I picked up in school was we were all about process. And so every project we turned in had to have a process book attached and that was like a 30 year grade. So you'd actually fail if you didn't have a good process book. Um, so I learned to respect that part of it so much that he was just such an icon at how he not only sketched out these beautiful ideas in such a minimal amount of lines to communicate it, but also how physical he got with the use of color and the strokes. Like if you see any of his croquis and how he kind of swept color across the body, but then also was always stapling a million swatches onto everything. So like, if you look back at any swat, any croquis designs anywhere, there's always staple marks everywhere. And, you know, tweed all cut all haphazard, like kind of on the edges. And there's just something so inspirational and physical about it that you get that it's the creativity is coming in such a physical way, even though, and uh, I think there's just something really cool about that. And I think that's, that's somebody that I always looked up to quite a bit. Nice. I thought you were going to say Johnny Cash just because of the black. Uh, <laughs> normally I have all black on too. It just, it's a unique day. You know, it's a special day. It's a <laughs> I think it's because the sun's out. <laughs> um, Talking to somebody who works in color, I should wear color and here I am in all black. Just completely ruined everything. Um, you mentioned like the staples and things like that. I'm wondering who do you create for? Because um, I know like there's a lot, like something like that. Someone like that's not into art, someone that's not an artist is gonna look at it like, why are, the, why are there staples on mm -hmm. this thing? Like that is not art. Um, so for you, like who are you creating for? Is it more you? Is it um, the consumer? Like what, what is it? Like not necessarily shoes, just like when you're creating, who are you creating for? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm very much like, and I feel like people on my team and at work always get so annoyed because I'm always like, so who's your consumer? Why does your consumer care? What does what is, what is this have to do with them at all? And I think that that's always been my big MO and that's why I like design is because design is solving, like solving a problem and coming up with a solution. So if I'm just doing it for myself, I'm not really signing up, like I could go buy that, right? To solve that problem. I can tell you, you know, millions of designers who will do it better than I can for that. So it's more about what is the problem to solve for your consumer? And so I've always been really consumer obsessed in that sense. Um, I think one of, like, I always go back to when I have designers who will be like, oh, but I just, I don't know. I just don't get it. I'm not, I'm not at all like that person, how well I do that. And I think one of my favorite stints in my career was when I was in North America out with Ron Wright. And we were doing a lot of really fun work around House of Hoops. And George Labossier and I would go out to Harlem and we'd go up to, you know, the House of Hoops up there and uh, from 125th. And we'd sit there and we'd talk to the store associates. We'd be talking to kids and all this stuff. And I am clearly not the target consumer for the House of Hoops in Harlem, <laughs> um, but I think that I was probably at the time one of the best designers for it because I was having so much fun not doing it for me and doing it for the consumer and doing the best I could to serve the consumer, which involves so much fun research and going out and talking to people and really just prying what they really wanted out of them, right? And talking to all the people who are working up there, who are shopping up there, who that's their community. And I think that was what made it so fun for me was working in that sense for the consumer versus, I mean, I don't want to work for myself. That's just boring, right? Like it's yeah. way more fun when you've got somebody cooler to work for. <laughs> yeah. Just, just a full up on that. Um, and mostly just for my own curiosity. I know a lot of creatives, um, like I was a musician for a long time. I'm a writer as well. Like a lot of creatives put a lot of pressure on themselves to monetize their creativity. 
which then stifles the creativity. So how do you like balance like, hey, I've got to make this thing. I've got to be creative, but I also have this art over here that I want to do. I'm going to take a photo of my dog, you know, like how do you how do you balance that? What does that look like for you? Oh, that's a hard one. I always struggle with this because one of my big problems uh, is that I throw myself so much into my work that I it kind of be does become kind of all, all encompassing for me. Um, so I've always kind of struggled finding like that outside of work thing. I mean, luckily when you're doing something you really care about and is kind of all consuming for you for your day job, it it's a, it's a blessing and a curse, right? Like I always joke that I'd love to be like a spreadsheet person because then I could like turn it off and go out and then go paint or something, right? Um, one of the things that I got better back about a few years ago was I uh, kind of, when I was freelancing, I inserted myself into, I'm gonna start learning things that I've always been curious about but haven't necessarily had the time to. And that's one of the reasons I'd kind of gone freelance uh, after I was at Kohan was to kind of get back to like, what were some things that were important to me that I just wasn't prioritizing. So I took on natural dye as one of those things. Ooh. And it's actually amazing how much it's influencing. Even I'm working on something right now for work with it. Um, how much it influences the stuff that you actually do in your day to day or how it sometimes will find a way to monetize itself if you just kind of give up on that part of it and just kind of go for it for the sake of passion. I know a million people have said like, oh, follow your passion and eventually it'll turn into money. That is totally not always true. Um, and so when that actually kind of happened a little bit, I was like, wow, I guess it wasn't all totally, totally bullshit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's, uh, it was, it was a really fun thing. I took an FIT, um, like weekend in uh, intensive course. Um, and it was uh, just eye opening to find something that felt so different than what I was doing every day, even though it was still related, right? It's still color, it's still materials, that kind of thing. But it was very scientific because with natural dyes, it's about weight and proportion and how you like the different chemical reactions with things and pH balances and all this stuff. And I found that part of it really interesting because it was so different from what I was doing that it became a different side thing that I could kind of work on in, in my spare time. So Love I'm not sure if that actually even answered what you asked me. It does, it does. <laughs> So we left off you getting a job as an intern at Nike. From, from Nike into where, into where you are today, take us through the, that journey, because I know it's, it's been uh, a ride, to say the least. So take us through that. Yeah, so um, I guess the, the short version. Um, so I was an intern at Nike. I, um, it was in... 2008 in the bus, uh, well, 2007, I was going to get, try to get hired on right into the 2008 um, bubble was about to bust. So that was a fun time uh, to be getting a job. So young listeners, I feel you right now. Like it's terrifying. Um, but I think uh, I, one of the things that was kind of formative in that was that it did kind of pull up that grit that I was talking about from before, like from college and stuff of, okay, so this is not ideal. How do we how do we kind of manage around this? Because there's no jobs, the hiring freeze. I've been told there's even the jobs that are coming up are getting eliminated. Like, what do you do? And so kind of tried to figure out like, how much does it mean to not, to not um, know what's next and how, how much, how far are you willing to kind of push it? And so uh, kind of getting a lot of advice from people that I had gotten close to over my internship that were, had been there for a long time. And then um, ended up on the last day of my internship, getting an extension. For another three months Ooh, nice. <laughs> and being like oh my gosh i thought i was gonna have to go live in my car or something like i don't know what i was gonna do like i've, I've got no way i can go back to grants pass i don't know what's happening so um got extended that last day and then ended up getting hired on full time in the team that i was working on um, on currently and 
it was with the footwear leadership team. Um, and so it was, they had kind of noticed that, you know, at night, sometimes they'd come in and there'd be a couple more images up on the boards they'd been working on, or uh, the layouts were actually all full, even though, you know, I didn't have access to the building and stuff. Like I remember one time I actually camped out outside of the conference room that we were working in and the blinds had been up and I got out there and my badge didn't work. I got there at like, I think it was like six o'clock in the morning. So I was like, I want to get all this in before, you know, the bosses come in and everything. And I got there and my badge didn't work. And I was like, oh crap, now what do I do? So I, uh, I, I sat there with my laptop outside the window and was replacing the images through the window to try and make sure they were all there. So that by the time we got in, I printed them out and put them all up. And I was like, oh no, we're good, we're good. We're ready to keep moving kind of thing. <laughs> um, and so I think they kind of saw something in me there and kind of kept uh, kept me around for a little longer to be like, okay, what's this crazy girl actually doing? Uh, and got hired on as a color designer in the studio. So through that, it was really, I had never heard of the term color designer. I didn't know what that meant. And uh, I got to work with the, the leadership team though on a lot of initiatives. And it also meant that I kind of got to be a little bit of what we used to joke was the color spot team where I'd go into different categories, like every couple weeks or months, depending on what the need was, if it was like somebody had left or gone on maternity leave. So I did, I think it was seven categories in like the first year, year and a half that I was at Nike um, and got to know a lot of people that way, a lot of product, a lot of consumers and just how different it could be everywhere. So from there, I went um, into uh, North America, which is a kind of like a regional geography and had a lot of fun there because what I really wanted to learn about out there was um, the kind of business side of it and what everybody kept talking about, oh, Foot Locker, Champs or all these different things. And everything was very specific to North America over there. So I wanted to go learn about the business side a little bit because I'm very much like a curiosity killed the cat kind of person where I'm like, if I don't understand it, I want to figure out how to kind of learn as much as I can about the things around me to make it easier, not only on who I'm working with, but just to understand what's happening, right? So how I weaseled myself into like a footwear anatomy class at Nike and a development, how to build a shoe class as a color designer, you know, things huh. like that. Um, and I think that that's a place where it's really, really an awesome place if you're super curious like that and have a lot of just like want to push, 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 at least back, back then, it's been a long time. It's very different now, I'm sure. Um, to kind of help you kind of just learn and learn more as you go. Um, so that was a great learning experience out there. I also got tempted because as I mentioned before, Ron Wright, one of my big mentors was out there, had just gone out as the design director. So I definitely followed him out there too uh, and learned from that team a lot. It was so awesome. Um, and then eventually when it was time to, time to go, I went back in and went to sportswear on um, a very interesting dynamic where I was on what was then called Elements. It was our boots and sandals business. So it was very mm -hmm. seasonal, like, and then also collaborations. Uh, so we were, oh. I was working on things like, you know, flip flops that were, you know, like little foam flip flops for, at the time we were talking about the, uh, the Brazil Olympics, as well as Comme de Garçon for Dover Street Market, you know, things like that. It was a very interesting <laughs> kind of like uh, high low, <laughs> but a fun way, a fun way to learn about it. So that's kind of where I was at Nike, worked on a lot of really, really amazing stuff in sportswear too, like an awesome team there, did some really cool adventures. Um, and then from there was really getting that New York itch. I grew up in Southern Oregon. I went to school at Oregon State. I then went to Portland. I kind of gradually made my way up and um, I just felt like I wanted to see more, wanted a little bit more um, diversity, a little bit more um, big thinking. Um, and Portland's very different now too than it was back when I was there. Um, and so I left there and moved out to New York after kind of uh, stalking the friends at uh, Style Sight who 
is a trend agency that was there back in 2012 still, um, who were, they were acquired by WGSN while I was there. Um, oh, so I think most people nice. heard of WGSN, yeah. Um, but a little ragtag crew of us at Style Site that was just so much fun and a lot of hard work, but some of the best people I've, I've met, right? And so they kind of adopted me in as a family out there and became my like little New York family and went out to the East Coast and Oh, that was fun. I moved out there in July, spent my first full month in New York City um, on Canal and Mulberry in August. And can I tell you, as a girl who comes from a place with no humidity, whew, that was a, <laughs> I think that was more of a learning than anything else about the city. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so made it to there, to the trend, trend world, um, and did that for what, like two and a half years um, after the acquisition, I felt like it was a good time to kind of move back into design. I was really missing once again, the physicality of it and the touching and feeling and the textures. Um, and I didn't feel like I was talking to consumers there. And that really kind of like, it, it always kind of ate at me. I was talking to people who were then talking to consumers. So I never knew how to really craft it to get to the kid or to get to that, that woman or whoever you're trying to sell something to because I wasn't designing, I was right. I was telling them what existed for them to look at to design. Mm -hmm. And I just really missed the design side of it. So, yeah. Nice. Um, you want me to keep going or what? Yeah, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm like from there, um, I went out and freelanced for a little bit and started freelancing actually for Coolhan because I had been talking to them for a bit. Um, they did not know, they didn't have color design at the time. They didn't have, they had um, a materials team and they had a concept team. Um, but they didn't have color or anyone who really focused on how to take existing silhouettes and kind of keep them alive season after season. And so I went in there and kind of showed them a bit how to do that a little bit. And um, then kind of they pulled me in full time. And I was like, wait, I thought I was supposed to be freelancing and like going and like, you know, sunbathing in the middle of the day. Turns out that's not what freelancers do either. So it's okay. Uh, <laughs> and so um, I went there and was working uh, with Kohan and work took on um, helping them not only build up kind of their sports side, coming with my Nike background and then the background I had because I was the active editor at Style Site. So I focused mainly on the sports sector. So anything from BMX to yoga to running to basketball, right? So um, kind of helped them build up their sports side of the business um, with their zero grand product, their original grand, bringing in the grand pro, um, bringing in some of their more casual stuff too, like, um, like uh, really focusing on like the weekender project or product that was a big franchise they had um, and help them take a couple of things that were not necessarily doing as well as they wanted them to because they uh, needed someone who really knew how to focus on taking an existing silhouette and really sparking that kind of seasonality into it with materials and color and treatments and graphics and how you could bring that and take the same shoe season after season after season back to life right so uh, a great example for them when I was going in was I was like, well, you've heard of the Air Force One, right? And they're like, yeah. I was like, well, I worked on the 30th anniversary. How long do you think that she's been around now? Like, yeah. <laughs> and like, how do you, how do you make it like we put out like what like 60 SKUs in that one story, and they were all different from shoes that had been done before. Like, yeah. there, if you have a good shoe and you build an amazing shoe, you can keep it alive forever, right? If you've got somebody who who gets that and knows how to do it right and doesn't burn it all out in the first season or two, like have the, the, it takes a lot of patience to do that too sometimes and the storytelling and how you kind of keep it going. But that's kind of what I help them kind of see there. That's awesome. Can we like focus on that before we go into the rest? Just right there. And I know it's weird, like hearing yourself talk for a long time. I get mad at myself, like, shut up, bro. Shut up. Um, but like, how, how do you keep it alive? 
Well, I think one of the things that um, if you're if you're doing it right and you're paying attention, uh, your consumer helps you do that, right? Because your consumer's always changing. Your consumer's never going to be the same season to season. Um, so I think that one of the big things to remember is if you keep obsessed with your consumer, you're not going to have that hard of a problem with it. Um, if you're following other brands or you're looking at, you know, just like, oh, this trend report came out, you know, you're you're going to struggle. That's, mm -hmm. That makes it a lot harder. But if you go at it in an authentic way, like you tell me the 17-year-old kid this year is not different than the 17-year-old kid last year, and I will laugh at you, right? Like there's, there, especially now, they're just like the consumer evolves so fast and everything, the world changes so fast that there's no way that you could, I mean, it makes me like in shock sometimes that we have the timelines we do just because of the production cycle. But you tell people you design two years into the future and they're like, how can you do that, right? Like, but I think once, you, once you've done it for a bit and you kind of get pattern recognition and you can watch behavioral patterns and things like that, you, you can figure it out. But yeah, like you, it'd be impossible to kind of keep it looking exactly the same unless you just made triple white sneakers every time, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> Exactly. It's, it's crazy. My dad, uh, I had a pair of Air Force Ones on when I went home. And my dad looks at my shoes, and he's been doing this a lot lately where, because he knows I'm obsessed with them, and I come in with a new pair of shoes every time. But he looks at my shoes, and he's like, those were really hot when I was growing up. And now I see like teenagers around my area wearing them. Why, how do they come back like that? And it's just it's crazy to me knowing that, like, I mean, it, he has a story where he, I wore a pair of Jordan 4s to the house and he was like, I, yeah, like I knew somebody who got killed on the corner of my, at the house uh, just for those shoes because they were Jordans back in the day. And now just like style just ever evolves and obviously Jordans is this long lasting uh, legacy at this point and um, it's just crazy to know that I just feel like it's just a revolving door where if Air Force Ones go out of style tomorrow I in three weeks they'll be back in style and like it, it goes for any type of shoe um, I feel like and correct me if I'm wrong I, I love to be told I'm wrong but I feel like like you said story is a really big part of that and with what Kanye has done with with Yeezy and his shoes I, I feel like those are almost being overdone and specific models are being overdone with different colors and you know how crazy he is, but um, it, it just feels like, especially the 350 model, it just feels like it's just ever evolving. Like, oh, I'm just gonna slap a new color on this and call it Aslay and put it out there and it's a new shoe and people are gonna go crazy for it. And I, just, I don't get that, that type of hype in a sense. Yeah, I think that type of hype, I think isn't, it's not long for this world anymore, right? And right. I think that it's not just like the pandemic, it's not just everything else going on in the world that's making people kind of reevaluate what makes sense and what is important. But I think it's also just people are over it. and the younger kids that are coming up behind us, like they're not into that. Like they, right. they care about, you know, marching for climate change. And if their shoe is made out of like a factory that's not treating their workers properly, you know, like I think there's bigger, bigger issues on their mind than if they look, you know, fresh right out of the box or right. if they got that cop like right when it dropped or whatever, you know, like they're, they're a different breed than we were. And I think there's something really cool and inspiring about that. Like it makes me feel like the world's going into a better direction for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but I think um, it's interesting. We've seen a lot of like our club C model, for example, uh, it's one of our most iconic models. It's an awesome shoe. And we've seen a 
ton of interest in it from like younger girls and like 13 to 16 year old girls. And it's a really cool thing to see them out wearing it on the street. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we were so worried about this shoe. And now like, look at this, it's, they're, they're taking it. And we've had people like, uh, we did an interview with a report, like a writer who had reached out to us actually, because she was like, I just, I wanted to reach out and see if I could chat with, you know, who's behind the shoe because my daughter asked me to buy a pair of Reeboks off of Urban Outfitters. And I was like, what are you talking about? Kind of thing. And she looked at it and she was like, that's the club. See, I had that shoe when I was your age kind of thing. Right. And so I think it's just a really cool thing to see um, kind of how the cycles work to your point, right? Like how yeah. certain shoes are going to be icons and they'll come back and they'll live. And even if they go away for a little bit, um, they just never really go away. Um, but also just how that, that idea of that hype for hype's sake, I'm super like personally pretty excited to see it starting to die down a little bit. Yeah. I think it was, it's, it's, it feels more meaningful when there's a story and a reason behind things versus just kind of slapping things on to make it the new version to your point. Like, Oh, it's a, sh a different shade of yellow this time. So we're going to call it a new name and everybody's going to line up and try and buy it on the internet. So exactly. yeah. Talking about that consumer now and more social impact, would you say that that story always has to be there? Is it always something that's like, yeah, does the story have to be there? I think in order for it to really resonate, the story has to be there. Whether mm -hmm. they know the story or not is a different, that's a totally different thing. And we talk about this a lot uh, internally is if you don't put in the work to put the story behind a product, people know, right? Mm -hmm. um, you could you could also put in all this work on a story and it never gets communicated because you don't have the marketing budget or you don't have the right placement or whatever. If you put in that work and that love of the story, they're going to see it. Like we used to joke about how consumers would make up uh, different names for the packs we'd put out, uh, like the shredded wheat pack, right? It was never shredded, not about shredded wheats, you know, things like that. Like yeah. how if you put it in there, they'll find it, whether they call it the right thing or not, doesn't matter, but they'll find that the intention's there. I feel that. Can you like, and again, just because I'm curious, we can go back to your story. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> can you just explain to me like what? This is way more fun. <laughs> good, good. Um, from like a story perspective, like one, how you go about like defining that story, but mm -hmm. also what is a story? Um, Cause I know I have a very weird viewpoint, but I'm like, I'm a writer, you know? And the way that people explain stories, sometimes it's like, yeah, like I was 18 and then I ended here and like, here we are, you know? And it's just, there's no real depth there. So I'd love to just, from your perspective, how do you get it? How do you do it? And then what is it? Yeah, I think there's, so there's so many like ways to go about it. Like if you're working with an athlete, it's one thing that's a little easier, right? So you can kind of mine out of them. Um, if you're just working on a consumer you've never met, that can even be harder because you don't even get to talk to them. And I love to pull things out of people, like whether it's a consumer, whether it's an athlete, a collaborator, like pull like little nuggets out. Um, when it's like, say it's, you know, a certain age group of this demographic that lives in this part of the country, right? And especially now, like I was thinking about this earlier when I was getting ready to come on and talk to you guys, it's like, oh man, like, cause I was, one of the questions you guys asked later is about like, um, what's one of the things that kind of keeps you inspired, right? To keep designing. And I was like, well, I would normally would have said travel, right? But that doesn't really work now. Yeah. And you realize the things <laughs> that you fall back on and things like this in a global <laughs> pandemic. Um, but I, because travel is such a big part of it, like going to see the place, to see the people, to meet them, to make it more authentic. Because once you do that, you're going to find little nuggets out of like thin air, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, for example, like Gigi Hadid is a, a collaborator we worked with quite a bit at Reebok. And she's just an amazing person. She's super creative. Um, she's really good at just 
explaining and telling you her thoughts. So she's really fun to design with because she'll come in and she'll talk about like, oh, well, I was going through my dad's closet and we found this sweater and this was really cool. What if we did this and we mix it with this and did this? And you're like, oh my God, like I, I could have never come up with that on my own, right? Yeah. Like I'm just going to pull that out of you. But um, say you're in like a global pandemic trying to design a whole new season uh, and you're, <laughs> you're not able to go anywhere. Um, I think that's where you start to lean on things like you've got nature, right? You've got um, the internet only goes so far. I know that a lot of people are like, well, you have the internet, everything's there. For, for most people, I think I'm one of those. It's hard not to be able to touch and feel and explore. Um, but you can, t you can go on like um, virtual like lectures from people and webinars, go do some coursework that a lot of people have like Coursera and stuff now that are doing like awesome free like lecture courses and things that you can do. Like just educating yourself about things that are interesting and finding, finding something that sparks, right? Like yeah. you have to have the spark to start the story. So even if it's something you feel like you're creating out of thin air, you're not because you're finding a spark, you're taking that curiosity, you're chasing that curiosity and then finding like kind of like where that goes next that makes any sense at all. I feel like I just rambled. No, that yeah. was that was really, that made a lot of sense. I think one of the things that's cool about uh, story is that it's up for interpretation, right? Like while uh, you could be telling, like you said, while you could be telling a story, somebody might come up with a completely different name for your, this model and it might run. Like, I think Reeboks, Reeboks specifically, uh, obviously just collaborated with Tom and Jerry and growing up my like that was the one thing me and my brother watched at my grandparents house all the time and to be completely honest I maybe I wasn't looking or anything like that but there wasn't like too much promotion of it beforehand um, and then it dropped and I was like immediately I had my interpretation of the story and I was like I texted my brother immediately I was like hey we need these and that was why I purchased. It wasn't any outside sponsored ads or anything like that. It was, hey, let's see if grandpa wants one of these too, because that was what he put on to watch with us all the time. And it's just, it story's just crazy to me because like, while I might have a positive experience that like makes me jump out a pair of shoes, it might be something completely negative for another person or anything like that. So it's, it's interesting um, for our, from our perspective. But women in sneakers, the industry, obviously, we're going to be highlighting a ton of people and you are the first episode, but we... To interrupt, I'm glad you segued because I had like 30 more questions. I know. I, <laughs> I, knew you I felt it. it. I felt it. I, I felt it. Um, but like we, we are doing, uh, obviously, highlighting uh, a ton. Of, I wish we could highlight more women in the industry, but... Uh, a lot of people don't know that this industry is, from my perspective and what I've learned, it's really run by females, but everything that's out there is male, this male did this, and this male did this, and this designer did this, but it's predominantly males for some reason. And obviously the, the industry does not reflect that. There's a lot of women working in the industry and doing a ton of great things in the industry. So. I just, I think we just want to hear your perspective coming up in the industry. Did you have to, do you feel as if you've had to work harder uh, starting off and obviously don't want to step on any toes or anything like that, but really just want to get your, your reaction to that question? Yeah, um, I think it's, it's definitely a topic that has evolved a lot in my time in the industry. Uh, 
I see some people do it pretty well. Some people don't. Other people have evolved and changed. Um, I've not always had the best experiences, but I think I've also, uh, being a woman in the industry is a really interesting dynamic because I've met some of the most incredible people in the world because I'm a female in this industry, but I've also met some of the biggest shitheads, right? Like you kind of, you kind of get both sides. Um, I've, it, it automatically kind of filters people in a weird way because I feel like they don't, they treat you differently, whether you like it or not, it's going to happen. Um, but you also kind of are a part of a weird secret club. Um, where like when you find the good ones, you find each other and you stay in touch and you kind of like have like your own little like secret club that kind of grows as you grow. And I think that's one of the most amazing things. Like, um, for example, one of my first mentors at Nike is Karen Ryder. And she obviously, um, you know, years later, we kept in touch. She left while I was still there. Um, we freelanced at one point um, on a consulting gig together, like back when I was in New York. And then she went in to be the creative director at Reebok. Mm -hmm. And so uh, she pulled me in at Reebok as somebody who she knew that I knew how to do this job really well because she had seen me do it. She knew I could do it. Um, We had a good relationship. We also were people that just kept in touch because we found each other in this crazy world where you kind of have to find each other and grab on to survive. Right. And I think I've got a lot of amazing people like that in my life and in my professional circle because of that. Um, I've got, you know, young designers that have left my team and gone other places and ended up working for a friend of mine at another company. And I'm like tagging with him being like, you better be good to her or else I'm going to steal her back. You know, like <laughs> the industry is very small. <laughs> so I think it, um, it's an, it's an interesting one to be a female in and it's gotten better in some spots. Um, I think there's still a lot of work to do as there is on a lot of things in our industry that we need to fix. Um, but it's nice to see that people are getting better about it and that you're seeing more women through things like this that you guys are doing. You're kind of seeing the curtain be pulled back a little bit, yeah. which is really nice. Um, there's a lot more, um, you know, panels coming about at different speaker conferences. There's, you know, things like uh, different, um, you know, clubs or organizations that are pulling women to the top. There's, you know, podcasts like this things that kind of like let us kind of poke our head out for a minute and be like, Oh yeah, I, sorry. I can't come talk. I'm a little busy back here, you know, keeping the, <laughs> keeping the lights on, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Could you give like a guesstimation? Um, and it's cool if not of like past. Is that a word? Yeah. It's, it's a word, oh, man. I read nice. it one time and I'm like, wow, is that a word? I looked it up and it's a word. <laughs> nice. I mean, estimation, but guesstimation, <laughs> I sound smarter. Can you give a guesstimation um, past experiences of, ratio percentages however you want to break it down of men to women just so we know because i'm not i'm not really familiar total guesstimation it if i'm guesstimating over here uh, (laughs) i would say it kind of depends it depends on where you are Mm. and also what city you're in too a little bit Mm. because i feel like um when you get into like bigger cities and it might be more because i was in more of the fashion side there would definitely felt a little more female heavy at a place like a Kohan, for example, when I was there. And this is also just whenever I happened to be at the companies, um, places like some of the bigger places, I feel like depending on the roles too, it can be different Mm -hmm. because there was a time where I feel like there was three female footwear designers that I knew of, um, in the spot I was at and the rest were men. Whereas, um, I think that that's getting a lot better. Um, I know, in like when we when I started at Reebok um, I was in the classics division um, as head of design there and we had a 60 40 ratio women to men um, in the classics team across functions 
So that was between marketing, brand comms, like development, everything 60, 40. And that was pretty good. So, uh, it's, it just kind of depends because that's also a lifestyle side. Um, so on performance, maybe it skews. Um, I don't know. It kind of depends on where you are, but it's, there's a lot more of us than you think. (laughs) Yeah. I feel that. I I think it's, um, Dan was telling us, and those listening, Dan is in PR at Reebok. Um, Dan was letting us know that Reebok of they have four or five divisions, and of the four or five, I think, I think it's five divisions, and four have female leaders in their divisions. Um, if I'm not mistaken, or my math could have been wrong, but it it, it just goes to show you that they're. Reebok's doing a great job in paving that path, right? Giving everybody a seat at the table and not just uh, a specific gender or anything like that. And it's really cool seeing that, I don't know, like we didn't have this discussion with Erin Narlock, but we had it without knowing it. Like she was letting us know about all the things in the archives that Reebok has done in the past that have really been trendsetters that no one knows of um, really, and unless you sit down and, listen to our podcast or listen to those stories. So I love hearing that there are changes being made and there's somebody, there's a company paving a path that, and obviously there's always going to be work to be done. There's always going to be work to be done. Yeah, that was right. The first That's time. That's good, man. Um, <laughs> Grammarly would be proud. <laughs> but I, I feel, I feel as if there's, there's specific people that are really leading the charge that are doing good. And, um, I sat down I had a conversation, uh, crossing my fingers, that uh, she has some schedule uh, for us to actually have a podcast with her. I sat down with Susan Boyle uh, and had a conversation with her last Friday, I believe. Um, and she was letting, she's very passionate. She's, uh, she'll be a great episode if she jumps on. Uh, but she is, she lo- we were going back and forth and she said, I just don't understand why someone like Serena Williams, who has massive influence in the world or Venus, if you want to combine the sisters, have massive influence in the world. Someone like her needs to have a male designer to partner with to create a shoe rather than someone like her who probably has more influence than Stan Smith had back in the day, um, doesn't have a line like, like that or anything like that. It was, that was eye opening to me because when she broke it down, Obviously, uh, so if you don't, if somebody's listening that doesn't know who Susan Boyle is, she is, she was, I believe she was the first woman-owned sneaker boutique in New York City, and uh, called Rhyme NYC. And when she described everything that was going on and everything she had experienced, obviously she'll she'll be a great episode. But it's just interesting to me that even from that perspective, like, hey, let's collaborate, but. Let me throw a male designers on there so we can help sell something or anything like that. It's just, it's eye-opening to me. My, I think my, my girlfriend considers herself a massive feminist. And I feel like she's drilled that into my brain that like, I look at stuff like that. And I'm like, why? She would sell 10 times what, what most of these sneakers are selling for, but no one's giving her the chance. Or Do the we know why? Like, was she like... Did she say like I don't even there care? Was, like there just, was no no reasoning. At least from the research that I did after Susan told me that there was no reasoning behind it other than Nike already had a deal with Virgil mm. to put out 
sneakers that they said, hey, Serena, you, you're obviously under the name Nike already. Why don't we throw something on top of there? That's weird. Yeah. Interesting. But um, I think from here, I think uh, we don't want to take up too much of your time. So we're going to hit you with the rapid fire Can I ask questions. one more question before that? And this oh, is the last one. I'm gosh, sorry, bro. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, from, a, from a collab standpoint, how do you decide... Um, like, like he was saying, how do you decide what level of involvement an athlete or artist has? Is it based off of them? Is it based off of leadership? Like, how do you decide that? Basically, if I want to make a shoe, like, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you, it, it kind of depends. Um, I've seen literally the spectrum of involvement, depending on who it is, right? Um, I think it depends on the collaborator mainly because some people just want to be more involved. Some people you kind of have to cut them off because you're like, well, you're a little too involved. Um, but I think the, the best thing about it is you're really trying to get a true representation of that person. And that's why you're collaborating with them is that you're both the, the best collaboration is you're both getting something out of it. Right. And you're both making something that's better than you could achieve without the other person. So I think that's where I've, I've never loved doing collaboration projects where there's not very much involvement from the other side because it just feels really forced and fake and it yeah. just feels like you're getting paid to put your name on something even if it is because I researched a ton or whatever. So I think that that's really the the key is finding the right collaborator that they love your brand enough that they want to collaborate with you back, mm -hmm. right? I think that's where you see things like for example Vetmont with Reebok. They actually really love Reebok and that's kind of why they like combine forces and approach them is because they wanted to work with us, which is super rad because it's like the when you have to force a collaboration out of somebody and force good design work out of somebody it's just it's a pain for everyone and you just don't have that passion that you should have while you're creating something so i think that's kind of the key is i'd say a good collaboration has pretty pretty good uh, back and forth rapport there <laughs> i like that were you involved now you have me asking more questions were you involved <laughs> Sorry, at all at, with the uh pierre moss um collaboration and how I, I was just looking at their footwear with Reebok and it was just kind of out of this world. And I feel like he had a ton or they had a ton of um, influence on that silhouette. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I, I was definitely there. I was not involved specifically in that team as much because it kind of came through fashion. Yeah. Um, so you had like Evan and Chris and those guys working with straight with Kirby on that stuff. And um, Kirby is a visionary man. Like he yeah. just has incredible ideas and this amazing kind of vision. And so he was super, he's a very involved collaborator for sure. Like he was up at the office a lot. The team would go down to New York to meet with him, like very, very involved. And so when you see stuff coming out of there, it's authentically him, which I think is one of the things I love most about the work that, that he put out with us is that it always, was very much a representation of him and his vision through how that makes sense with Reebok. He also had a big respect for Reebok as a brand yeah. and made sure that it always still felt very Reebok at the end of the day, which I thought was really, really cool. Yeah, I love that. Okay, I'm sorry. There's one more. This is the last one I got. <laughs> last one. You mentioned you were looking for work 2007, 2008, right? Crash. And then you said pandemic. And I'm thinking, like, again, like people are looking for jobs. There's a lot of people that have to recreate themselves. You know, it's a crazy time. You don't know what's going to happen. But are you about to ask for a job? No, man. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I promise myself I can, never, I can never work for anybody else again. I'll collab, but like I can't. Uh, that would be, that's a good idea. If you, if you want a job, start a podcast. You meet a lot of there people. You go. Um, but from your perspective, where is, where is the industry going? Like, what's what's happening from here on out mm. 
Um, oh, that's such a big question. Um, I do think, I think that it'll be easier to freelance in the future, I think, than it's been traditionally. I think when that was happening to me and I was coming right out of college, like I was not armed the way these kids are. Like coming out of college now, it's like you can, you have seen so much more, you have access to so much more. You can slide into somebody's DMs and like get a mm -hmm. phone call with somebody and like do a Zoom call to introduce yourself and just chat, right? Like that doesn't, that didn't exist back then. Um, I think I'm really, really excited about that. I'm excited how educated and how just inspired they are and how like just even as a designer population we are and people are more connected to each other than ever. I think um, just seeing things like even like Working Not Working, uh, one of our friends is the co-founder of Working Not Working and it's this platform for designers um, that can get on as freelancers and um, or even if they're looking for full-time stuff, but they, instead of just being like a, like a job site, they're an entire community. Like not only do they throw the most amazing epic parties, but they also just are really good at just connecting people. They've been doing all of these kind of talks about, you know, mental health and kind of like how to take care of yourself during a pandemic, during, you know, everything going on with racism in this country, like how to be a, how to be a better ally, how to be anti-racist in the corporate world, like in wield your white privilege, things like that, how to kind of support each other through all the things that we're going through in life. And I think, it's that kind of community that makes me feel really good about where our industry is going because that didn't exist back then. And if it did, it was like in coffee shops once a month, if somebody yeah. happened to have time to slide out, like sliver out for you. And now you've got people who are devoting careers to it, building platforms to support each other. Like it's a really amazing thing. And I think that's where I don't think that relying on the same kind of nine to five jobs is going to be as important, especially we're learning that during the pandemic that, not everybody has to be in an office to be productive and yep. you don't have to do 40 hour weeks to be productive. Maybe you can do the same in 20 hours if you're just spending your time better, taking care of yourself better. Right. And I think that's kind of the best learning of where we're going. I like that. Yeah. Like no that. more for me. Just, just <laughs> rapid fire. Rapid fire. I'm going to have to borrow that because I don't have my, my All right. You ready? I think so. All right. Cool. <laughs> so what is the favorite, your favorite seeker that you haven't designed? Um, I'd have to say back to what we were talking about earlier, the club C, Okay. because I think, uh, it's, it's a sneaker for, for like the people, for everyone. It's like, it can go with anything. And I think one of the things when I was looking at your questions that I realized is every time I was trying to find like, Oh, what's that cool one that this, and what we we're talking about earlier, I'm not a hype person. I'm just not yeah. good at it. And I think part of it is because I've been doing this too long. And by the time something comes out, I've seen it for two years now and it's just not cool to me anymore, you know, like, yeah. and so I want, I want something, I want something that like hasn't been seen or is just my perfect staple so i think that that'd be my answer there i love that what's your favorite sneaker that you have designed so can i just can i say a collection because yeah. i think yeah. that I, I so it was um for the london olympics uh i did the sportswear collection for liberty of london Ooh. and we it was really awesome because do i am i allowed to use extra words or <laughs> um, because uh, we were trying to find something that really made sense for the Olympics and we we're doing this collab with Liberty and everybody thinks of Liberty as being this like ditzy florals and like kind of grandma kind of prints um, and I was like but it could it's so it could be so tough there's this heritage there right so I dug into and I found this book randomly that had this print and I'd been working with their um, archivist at Liberty too that had been there for like a couple decades 
And um, she actually found the original plate, but it was broken from the print I found in a book. And she brought it back to life and they remade the print. And it's oh. this black and white kind of like waving print that doesn't actually, it's not floral at all. And we made this thing about it because i it was all about the idea of the track runners wrapping themselves in the flags to go and do their victory Ooh, lap. Like and then that. it's like amazing symbolism, but it just felt like this beautiful texture on a shoe. And they ended up um, building it out for the entire Liberty like atrium. They had these hot air balloons in it because it was when we introduced um, air into the Olympic story. Um, and it was actually the first time that Liberty let their print be used on someone else's material. And we actually had them do a floral track spike for one of the British runners, uh, for one of the sprinters. And it just like the idea that something from a book that you found in a corner kind of dog-eared could become this entire big collection was just like really fun. That's so. awesome. What, <laughs> what's one thing that keeps you creative? I think we hit on this. Yeah, I, I would have said travel for sure. But I think um, what I've learned in quarantine, which I think is a very, very good lesson, that it's more the people when you're traveling than it is the places sometimes. And that by connecting to people, even like with you guys and stuff, like getting inspired through conversations we've had, it's this whole new perspective and seeking out different people to be inspired by versus just kind of like stay, getting outside your bubble doesn't mean traveling necessarily. And I think that's what I've learned in all this. And how do I make sure I get outside of that bubble? And I'm not just like locked in my house by myself being like, oh, I see wood is a good theme for spring. <laughs> um, like, <laughs> like, like, and I think that's, I think that's my, my thing there. Like that. Can you define, ooh, can you define your experience as a woman in the sneaker industry in one word? A seesaw? Ooh. <laughs> I want to ask you to explain it. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure if I one can. Word. Explain <laughs> it. Explain it. Let's hear it. This is my podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where I've met, being a woman in the industry means I've met some of the most incredible people I've ever met, but also some of the most terrible people too. I feel <laughs> so that. I wouldn't say that it's, I wouldn't say it's like polarizing or something like that. It's more just like, it's, it's like an up and down, it's a seesaw. This wasn't on the list, but I'm gonna ask you it because I, I sat down with my uh, mentor, I think it was a year ago now, and he told me that if you can't define what you do in six words, you do too much. So can you define what you do in six words? Oh man, um, like I have to count. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I'm like. <laughs> Uh, I'm like, I think I'm at five. I, I would say something, something like, um, kind of bring to life stories to consumers, Ooh. something like that. Okay. I like that. Respect. That's like way that. better than that. That was good. Yeah. I couldn't do it in six words. I had like 13 and he was like, no, you're lying. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm like, Ugh. <laughs> that's a um, tough one. It right? is. It is. I posed that question on LinkedIn and people went nuts. Like, they were like, oh, five. They were, is five okay? I'm like, I don't know. Like, five right. is fine. In my, it was just a question. <laughs> what is it about five, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's people weird. were weird though. Yeah. People had like paragraphs. Yeah. Like, this is not, this is not the instructions I gave you. Um, Those are the people who don't follow directions. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Story of my life. What's, uh, what's one thing that you feel people need to have in order to be or get into the footwear? industry 
I think that was a question, Matt. Yeah, you're right. I've got, to, I have two, but they go together. Uh, okay. So I would say you've got to have grit and mm. like kind of like willing to just get in there and do do the dirty work and roll up your sleeves. But then you also have to have a collaborative spirit because there's no way you can make it in this industry by yourself. If anyone tells you you can, like they're absolutely lying or they've just used people to get there because you can't do it alone. I feel I like that. So this one doesn't have to be just a few words, but uh, what makes you strange on purpose? Oh man, uh, I was I was thinking about this one because I was like, oh, this is a this is a tough one. But <laughs> then I I went back to a conversation um, that I had uh, when I was at Colhan, where the IT guy came over to help me with something with my computer, and he's kind of looking around my desk, and of course there's like color swatches everywhere, there's materials, there's like mood <laughs> boards, everything. He's kind of looking around, he's like, I just don't get what you do, and I was like, well, what do you mean? And he's like. There's like, you make it sound like every season, like there's all these different colors and there's new colors and new blues and new this and that. He's like, there's only like really like five or six colors. There's blue, there's red, there's green, there's whatever. And I like remember at the time being super offended, being like looking at this guy going, wow, you just completely like drop kicked my entire professional career in like a sentence while you're fixing my laptop. Thank you for that kind of thing, right? <laughs> like super offended. But then I realized, and, I, and I've had it kind of reinforced since then, that that's really what my superpower is, is that I am this weirdo that like obsesses the nuances and like all these little details and things. And even though back to the story conversation, people don't necessarily on the outside see all the work that goes into it. My obsession is kind of what makes me strange. Um, and it's what makes what I do good. 